says, Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe. And when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai's wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife. And then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, uh, male oxen, uh, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is it you've done to me? Why did you not tell me she was your wife? What did, why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my own wife? Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Let's pray over God's word this morning. Lord, thank you that even in the strange stories of the Bible, you can speak to us. Lord, would you speak to us this morning through your word, through the life of Abraham, through uh, the book of Genesis. And Lord, I pray that this word would not just be uh, learning a new Bible story, but that it would be uh, us encountering you and your will for our life. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated this morning. Have you ever noticed that sometimes people do stupid stuff? <laughs> if you haven't, maybe you're the one that's doing it, <laughs> Right? Otherwise, smart, capable, sane people can sometimes just do the dumbest things. You ever, I mean, really, let's, I know we're in church, but it's okay to say some people do stupid things, right? They really do. You know, you sit back on the sidelines and you watch someone make a life choice that absolutely makes no sense, that just doesn't add up, it doesn't uh, reflect who they are, really. You know, they start dating someone that's totally wrong for them. Hello? right? Uh, they make a big purchase that everybody knows they can't afford. We know you can't afford that car out in that parking lot. We all know it, <laughs> right? All of a sudden, they quit their job, and they got no plan how they're going to pay the bills. Come on, people do silly things sometimes, right? Uh, seems like out of the blue, someone who's never touched it before in their life, all of a sudden, they, they start drinking. They pick up the bottle. They, they, they develop some addiction out of the blue, uh, that kid you raised your whole life, one day he turns 14 and wakes up on the wrong side of the bed and you don't know who he is. He's not the same kid you raised. It's just nothing makes sense that he's doing or saying, come on, come on, right? I'm not the only one that's ever seen somebody make a dumb decision, make a stupid mistake, right? And we look at this and we can't even quite figure out why would they do that? What motivated them? What's the reason for their behavior? Why would they act that way? Now, every psychologist would tell you that every external behavior has something, has uh, everything that we can uh, observe someone doing, that we can watch on the outside. Every external behavior has an internal motivation. Everything we do has an internal influence. There are internal thoughts or feelings that a person has. There's a problem or a difficulty they're facing, uh, and their external behavior seeks to resolve that internal conflict or that internal difficulty. Are you following me? Yeah, right. So, for example, my, your stomach's empty. It gets a little uncomfortable. 
It sends a message to your brain that, hey, I, I need some food. You might feel hungry. You might even get a headache. You might start to feel lightheaded. Some of y'all, you get cranky when you're hungry. Amen? And so, so what do you do? What's the external behavior? You get up and you go to the refrigerator and you find a snack, right? That external behavior is, is seeking to resolve that internal difficulty or that internal conflict you have. Now imagine that same difficulty if you were homeless. Your stomach's empty. It sends a message to your brain. I'm hungry. We need food. You know, you start to get a headache. You feel lightheaded. Things start to get uncomfortable. What's the external behavior for you? Sometimes it's get a cardboard sign and stand on the corner, right? Or sometimes it's walk in the gas station and grab something off the shelf and walk out, right? Or, or maybe it's hitchhiking on the side of the road to get someone to take you to the nearest soup kitchen. All of those are external behaviors that someone did to bring about resolution to that internal conflict they were having. Are you following me? All of behaviors seek to accomplish a resolution of internal conflict. You have a thought or, your fee- or a feeling, and your thoughts and feelings motivate your behavior. Everything you do, everything, uh, every aspect of our behavior works this way. It's how you know to go to the bathroom. It's how you pick a husband or a wife. It's how you drive a car. It's how you know it's time to lay down and go to sleep at night. Everything you do is motivated by an internal thought or a feeling. Thoughts and feelings motivate behavior, okay? Now, here's the problem. Your thoughts and your feelings will lie to you. The scripture says in Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things. And anytime you read the word heart in the Bible, it's not talking about the muscle that pumps blood through your body. It's talking about your mind, your will, your emotions, your thoughts. What the Bible is saying is, is that your thoughts and your feelings, your emotions, they motivate your behavior, but be careful because your thoughts and your feelings and your emotions can be wrong. This explains why people do things that don't make sense. Because we're not living in their head. We haven't had the same thoughts or experiences that they've had. This explains why we can stand on the outside and look at their behavior and say they're acting crazy, but really in their mind, it all makes sense. Come on. Their behavior doesn't make sense to us because we aren't experiencing the same thoughts and feelings that they are experiencing. It's because their behavior is motivated by some internal thought or feeling, but those internal thoughts or feelings may have lied to them or distorted reality. See, your emotions, this is going to free somebody, it's going to set someone free. Your emotions are not always reality. Your emotions are not always reflective of reality. Just because you feel angry doesn't mean there's really anything to be angry about. Just because you feel like someone hurt your feelings doesn't necessarily mean they did something wrong. That's why I cringe when I hear people say things like, follow your heart, or let your heart be your guide. No, that's nonsense. Don't follow your heart. The heart is deceitful above all things. Your heart will get you in a mess. Your heart will get you to marry the wrong person. Your heart will get you in the wrong job, in the wrong house. It'll get you in the wrong relationship. Your heart is deceitful, and it can get you into all kinds of trouble. This is how a jealous husband or a wife 
can end up doing crazy things like smashing somebody's car window. They might have the best spouse in the world. They might have a really good marriage, but something crept in and, and created an insecurity in their mind. And now we, we filter everything our spouse does through that insecurity. They didn't do anything wrong, but we had that insecurity and everything they do filters through it. And then you end up smashing somebody's car window in because you think your spouse is running around on you. They haven't done a thing wrong, but there was an emotion and a feeling that didn't reflect reality that allowed to take control. This is how your teenager can come home from school and go on a tirade against mom. You didn't say anything to her. You just said, hey, baby, how was your day today? And she came in and she just let loose on you, man. She just, you, you were just the target right there. She, you didn't do a thing wrong, but some friend at school hurt her feelings, and now she thinks that the whole world's against her, and you just happen to be right in front of her when all those feelings let loose. You become the target. See, even if behavior doesn't make sense to us, it might not have been reality, but because they were thinking it, because they thought it, because they felt it, because they experienced it, they acted accordingly. Is this helping anybody? You understanding this? The Bible tells us a story about Abraham lying about the identity of his wife, Sarah, in Genesis chapter 12. This is right after Abraham had just begun his journey walking with God. He's taken the first step of faith to leave his hometown. He's on the journey going with the, to the land God is showing him, following the voice of the Lord. He's taken huge steps of obedience to God. But as he's traveling, he has to take a detour into Egypt because of famine in the land. And as they are entering the capital city of the Egyptian empire, Abraham starts to get nervous. He's riding into the city with his wife. He looks over at his wife riding the other camel over there. He looks over at himself. And he looks back over at her. And he looks down at himself again. And he remembers he married up. Come on. She's 70 years old, but God must have blessed old girl. She was looking good, he said, the Bible said. He said, hey, you're really good looking and I don't look so great. He said, when I get into the city, when we get into the city, they're going to want you, so they're going to kill me so they can have you. This is what he's, he's nervous, right? He's, he's realizing that some things aren't adding up. There's some insecurity. He says, honey, you're so beautiful. When they see you, they're going to try to kill me so they can take you as their own. So when we get there, let's don't tell them you're my wife. Let's just tell them that you're my sister. That way they won't kill me. So instead of killing Abraham when they arrive, Pharaoh pays Abraham a bride price. He pays a dowry and takes Sarah as his own wife, and he takes us into his own home, into his harem, his collection of multiple wives and concubines. Are you following me? All right. Adults in the room, are we communicating about what's really happening here? Okay. But God sees all of this, and he puts a curse on Pharaoh's house for taking another man's wife. And the truth comes out. And Pharaoh gives back Sarah to her husband and sends them on their way. Now, here's what I've been driving at the whole time. To us, Abraham's lie, reading a Bible character story like this, it doesn't make any sense. What's totally out of character for a man of his personality, a man of such great faith that three major world religions revere as the father of their faith, as someone that we see as a hero of the faith. How could he do this? Why would he do this? How can a man who's being so faithful do something so faithless? And to Pharaoh and his household, Abraham's lie doesn't make sense. They say, why would you lie to us about this? Why would you deceive us? Why would you bring this curse on us? But remember, every behavior has a thought or a feeling motivating it. 
Listen, Abraham lied because he feared for his life. His thoughts and feelings of fear caused him to lie about his wife's identity. And this lie, it was a sin against Pharaoh. It was a sin against God. And it was a sin against his own wife. And it's possible that maybe his fears were a little bit legitimate. It's possible that maybe there were some jealous Egyptians who might have acted violently in order to win over this beautiful woman. But even if the thoughts and feelings had a little bit of truth to them, Abraham's actions were totally contrary to God's word and his own faith. Abraham's fear caused him to act contrary to his faith. I want to talk for just a few moments about fear versus faith. Fear versus faith. See, most of the time when we hear people talk about faith or teach about faith, we assume that the opposite of faith is doubt, right? That's what we normally hear talked about. But doubt is not the opposite of faith. See, the definition of doubt is just to have questions or uncertainties, I would argue that something isn't faith unless you do have a few questions or uncertainties. If we had all the answers and we knew all the steps, would it really be faith? Faith is acting and moving in spite of those uncertainties or in spite of those questions because we trust God. Abraham wasn't where he, didn't know where he was going. He wasn't certain where God would take him. He had questions about how he was going to have a children after the age of 70. But those uncertainties and questions didn't stop him from stepping out in his walk of faith. Are we, you understand what I'm saying? So he, he had questions and uncertainties, but he could still operate in faith. So you can have questions and uncertainties. You can have those kinds of doubts while still stepping out in faith because the opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is fear. This story shows us that Abraham had a temporary lapse in faith because he was crippled by fear. Now, I want to be clear, we're not talking today about, uh, about common sense, healthy precautions. If you come across a bear in the woods, you're going to be a little fearful. That's not what we're talking about, okay? And we're also not talking about that fear that the King James Version talks about, a fear of God, a, a reverence for God, a deep respect for God. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking this morning about something the Bible calls a spirit of fear, a spirit of fear. And the spirit of fear never comes from God. The spirit of fear is a demonic attack against people of faith to cripple them and to keep them from walking with God in faith. Abraham that day was dealing with a spirit of fear. But the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 1, he says, uh, this, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love, of power of love and self-control. And some translations say of a sound mind. The spirit of fear then seeks to rob you of your spiritual power, your faith, your own good judgment. It robs you of your own self-control, your own self-discipline. It robs you of sound thinking. Put another way, the spirit of fear will cause you to be undisciplined and do things out of character with your normal right-minded thinking. The spirit of fear distorts your thoughts and feelings to get you to act outside of your faith in God. Now, here's a few things about fear. Number one, fear freezes faith. Say that with me. Fear 
freezes faith. See, living a life of faith, it's all about moving. It's all about growing. It's all about stepping out. It's all about going forward, taking action. Living a life of faith means hearing God's word and then doing God's word and stepping out. Abraham's faith meant he had to leave the old place to go to the new place. But fear always freezes faith. Fear will keep you backed into a corner. Fear will keep you from doing anything. Fear will keep you frozen in time. Remember this story in Samuel. Remember this in the Bible where there's, uh, for weeks, the army of Israel, they were camped out on the side of the battlefield from the Philistines in a stalemate. And for weeks, every day, the giant would come out into the battlefield every day for weeks, and he would challenge the army of Israel to send out a warrior to battle him. You remember that story, right? Fear kept the army of Israel on the sidelines of the battlefield. No one moved for weeks as this guy taunted them every day. They were frozen for weeks in a stalemate, unable and unwilling to fight. But one day, a young boy was delivering sandwiches to his older brothers in the, in the army, and he heard the insults of the giant, and he saw the fear of the rest of the army, but there was something inside of him. It's called faith. Faith stepped out and said, you know what? This giant's not too big for my God. And so he ran down the mountain with nothing but a few stones and a slingshot, and he won the victory. Why? Because he overcame fear and stepped out in faith. Come on. Fear froze the army on the side of the battlefield. Faith took David to a place of victory. You know what's interesting about our story today is, do you notice when we read it that Abraham wasn't actually the one that told Pharaoh the lie? Abraham was so afraid of what would happen, he didn't even talk. Before they got there, he said, hey, Sarah, when we get there, you tell him you're my sister. You speak up. Fear kept Abraham, instead of standing in defense of himself and his wife, instead of speaking up, he froze. He got his wife to tell the lie for him. He stood by and watched it happen as his wife was taken and abused. He kept quiet while his wife allowed the lie to continue to the point that she was taking into Pharaoh's household. See, fear freezes faith. It keeps us cowered in the corner. It keeps us from stepping out into what God has called us to. You know, I've found that most people of faith, most Christians, they don't end up disobeying God out of just straight-up rebellion. It's not a, a method of disobedience. I just don't want to obey God, and I'm not going to. That's not what most—I'm talking about Christians, all right? That's not how most people end up in disobedience to God, which is blatant disregard for what he said. No, and instead it's more subtle usually people of faith, Christians. We know what God has called us to. We know he's given us the next step like we talked about last week. We know that he's given us something more that he wants us to do in our life. He has a destiny and a plan for us, but fear keeps us frozen from stepping out. I've known several people who were called into ministry or missions, but they never answered the call. Fear led them to believe that if I answer God's call, I won't be able to afford life. I won't be able to provide for my family. God won't provide for me. I'll be poor the rest of my life. I won't, I won't be able to do the things God I, I want to do. Otherwise, gifted, anointed men and women of God, called by God, were left frozen, settled for less than what God had for them. Why? Because they were frozen by fear. They find themselves eventually in just a state of disobedience, in a state of not, not obeying God. I've known people with addictions, Anything from tobacco to heroin. 
They know God's calling them to get free. They know God's calling them to get sober, to quit drinking, to get the help they need. But fear tells them that they need that thing and that life is too scary without that thing. I can't leave that thing behind because I don't know what life is like without it. So fear keeps them trapped in addiction. I've known people in unhealthy relationships, dating the wrong person, falling in love with the wrong person, but fear has told them they can't find anyone better. Fear has told them God doesn't have anyone better for them. Fear has told them if they break it off, they'll be alone for the rest of their lives. So instead of making the right choice and waiting for the right one God has for them, they settle for an abusive spouse. They settle for a loveless marriage, all because fear kept them frozen in a situation. Fear freezes. Number two, fear is forgetful. Fear is forgetful. Fear that day caused Abraham to forget everything that God had said to him. Fear that day caused Abraham to forget. God had already promised him a land of promise. He had already promised him to have a child. There's no way they could have killed Abraham because the promise hadn't been fulfilled yet. Abraham forgot that God said, whoever blesses you, I'll bless, and whoever curses you, I'll curse. He was under divine authority and protection for the rest of his life, but fear caused him to forget the promise. Here's another crazy thing. Abraham didn't make this mistake just once. If you turn the Bible over from Genesis chapter 12, a few chapters, you'll get to Genesis chapter 20. And Abraham pulls the same exact stunt, just the same exact lie, just with a different king. He comes into, into the land of King Abimelech, and he says the same thing riding in. They're going to think you're beautiful. They're going to want to kill me, so tell them you're my sister. Same thing happens. The king brings her into his household. God curses the household. The king comes back to Abraham, and he says, hey, why'd you lie to us about this? Why have you brought this? The same story happens six chapters later. How? Because fear is forgetful. Even though by the time we get to Genesis 20, Abraham has spent a ton of time talking with God. He's heard the voice of the Lord. He's spent time with God. He's heard God repeat multiple times his promises over Abraham's life. He has seen God give Abraham victory over armies that were bigger than Abraham. Still, when it comes to his wife, Sarah, Abraham has this spirit of fear, and he betrays his faith again. He betrays his God again. He betrays his wife again with the same lie. And we've seen this in, real, in our lives, right? Some people keep making the same mistakes over and over again. Like a broken record, they just keep doing the same dumb stuff over and over and over again. Same old story, just a different man. Right? Same kind of man, just a different name. Same addiction, just maybe a different substance. Same addiction, though. Fired again, just a different job. Working on your third divorce. It's your fourth engagement. It's your third girlfriend this year. Third time this month you've overdrawn your account. Come on. Making the same mistakes. Why? Because fear is forgetful. It'll cause you to forget what you learned from the last time, and it'll cause you to make the same mistake over and over again. It will cause you to forget God's promises over your life. It will cause you to forget the good things God has done in your past. It will cause you to forget the bad, how that bad choice turned out the last time. And because it's forgetful, it will keep you in the same old cycle, stuck in the same old thing over and over again, making the same bad choices, keeping you frozen in the same old corner. Now, so far, some of us in the room, we say, I'm not scared of anything. 
I don't run away from snakes and spiders. I'm not afraid. This message doesn't apply to me. I don't have a problem with fear. Here's the tricky thing about fear. A lot of times, we don't always recognize fear for what it is. We don't even recognize our own issues with fear because number three, fear wears camouflage. Fear wears camouflage. What I mean by that is fear often disguises itself as another emotion. Fear doesn't always look the way we think it should. It doesn't always be that kind of, it's not always that kind of thing where we just run uh, scared like we would from a spider or a snake or something like that. But that does not mean you don't have an issue with the spirit of fear. See, this is, this is just like, this isn't me talking, this is science talking here. Fear can manifest it ways, itself in ways other than what we typically think. For example, fear can manifest as hyperactivity. It can manifest as physical sickness, as exhaustion, cloudy thinking, insomnia, addiction, pills, alcohol, pornography, whatever, food, obesity. Fear can manifest as anxiety and depression, indecisiveness, pessimistic thinking, overly competitive Social withdrawal. We're so afraid of being, uh, of anything that we just withdraw from the people we love. But I want to talk for just a minute about one in specific, in a, in a very specific way, because this issue, fear often manifests itself in men, especially in America and our culture, in a certain way. See, in our culture, it's unacceptable for men to express the normal things that we associate with fear. Men aren't supposed to be afraid. We're supposed to be tough, you know? We're not allowed to discuss our fears. We're told from a young age that it's unacceptable for a man, a male, to be afraid. And just because we're told that doesn't mean we're not afraid, okay? It's still there. Men just express it differently in our culture. Oftentimes in our culture, not just men, but primarily men, fear gets expressed as anger and aggression, See, it's unacceptable in American masculinity for men to act afraid, but it's acceptable, even glorified in our media and our culture, for men to act out in anger and violence. But here's the problem. Just because it's more acceptable doesn't make it any less damaging. Psychologists will tell you that anger is always a secondary emotion. What that means is that it's always a symptom of a deeper underlying issue, a deeper underlying feeling, and that feeling is oftentimes fear. And many times, angry men are just scared men. And I don't mean that to say I'm talking down on anyone or saying that, oh, or, you know, belittle them. I don't mean it that way. It's just the reality. I, I don't want to uh, talk down or belittle anyone. I want to liberate them. When it doesn't make sense why that person is so angry, it could be that they're really dealing with the spirit of fear. This first hit me a few years back. I was taking a group of teenage boys canoeing on Frog Bayou over by Fort Smith. And it rained that night before, and I mean, the rapids were high. It was, it was like a wild river that day. It was awesome, and we were going to have so much fun. I was so excited. We got in the boat, and there was this new kid in the program with us, and he was just off of meth. I mean, he was really messed up. And he got, he, we got in the boat, and he was up in front of me. The first bend of rapids he got to, man, he flipped. All of his stuff went. He lost his paddle, everything, and he's just floating down the river, you know. And so we stop, and we're trying to get his boat and the paddle and everything and get it over to the side. And when I finally find him, he's sitting on the bank of the river. 
And when I walk up to him, man, he jumps up and he swells up. He's cussing me. He's calling me every name in the book. He even brought my mother into it. I don't know why. But he, I mean, he, everything. I mean, he was letting me have it. He was fixing to hit me. He was, he was mad. He was so angry. And I couldn't figure out. I was like, why are you so mad right now? It's just water. I mean, you know, it's fine. You had a life jacket on, you know. But this kid, he didn't know how to swim. Why was he so angry? He was scared to death. He really thought I was going to let him die out there. He really thought I was going to let him drown in that river that day. I'm not getting back in that boat. I'm not doing this. Well, there's no way out. You know, you've got to go down river. You know, he was so angry. The angriest I've ever seen somebody. It finally hit me. He was just terrified. He was afraid. Fear often comes out as anger. It's a known fact that if in a town, a factory or a major employer closes down, domestic violence in that town goes up. Ask any police officer, when men lose their jobs, domestic violence goes up. Why? They're afraid. How am I going to provide for my family? How am I going to pay the bills at the end of the month? This explains why when things don't go well at work that day or when the farm's not doing well, your husband comes in angry. You didn't do anything wrong. He's just afraid. It explains why when a husband sits in a doctor's office and his wife gets a bad diagnosis, what does he do? He goes out in the hallway and he punches a hole in the wall. Why? He's afraid of losing the one he loves the most. And the only way he knows to express it is out of anger. See, fear wears camouflage. It disguises itself in the camo of things like addiction, indecisiveness, depression, anger. I want to just say, particularly in this room today, if there's someone who's struggling, who's struggling to the point it's hurting relationships with anger or a spirit of fear, before you leave today, we're going to pray for you. We're going to pray for that loved one that's on your mind. We want us to work through this together. We're on this step of faith and on this walk of faith, taking steps. We're going to deal with it. We're going to acknowledge it. We're going to pray for it. One more thing, fear has consequences. Fear not dealt with will always lead to unintended consequences. Fear will keep us frozen on the sidelines. It will cause us to forget what God has promised. It keeps us from moving forward in faith. And if we don't deal with it, the consequences can be catastrophic. See, Abraham's fear for his life led him to lie about his wife's identity, and there were most definitely consequences. Looking at this story, adults in the room, we're communicating here, all right? Who paid the price for this lie? Sarah did. We understand what happened to her, right? We're communicating about what happened when she was taken into another man's household. She paid the consequence for Abraham's lie. She was innocent. She was a powerless woman in this situation at the mercy of the men in her life. And because of her husband's lapse in faith, she suffered. Abraham's fear, his lapse in faith, caused him to hurt the one he loved the most. See, fear undealt with can have tragic consequences. See, the spirit of fear does exactly the opposite of what it claims to do. Fear says, if you stay here and you freeze, you'll be safe. Fear says, I'm trying to protect your safety. Fear says, protect yourself at all costs. Fear says, be safe, be cautious, be overly cautious. Fear says that, but in actuality, chronic fear can actually harm you. 
Again, this isn't just me. Mental health professionals will tell you, chronic fear does not protect. It actually damages you. It weakens your immune system. It causes ulcers. It can cause heart disease. It can even cause accelerated aging and premature death. The spirit of fear, it tells you to play it safe, but what it really does is robs you of life-giving faith. There's good news, though. We're getting there. There is a cure for fear. There is a cure for fear. Listen, you don't have to be a slave to the spirit of fear. You don't have to be uh, stay in the corner frozen by fear. You don't have to stay stuck in a cycle of fear. Uh, you don't have to stay stuck making the same old mistakes. You can be free because the cure of fear is the presence of a father. Pastor Glenn Dorsey, we're going to have him speak here one day. He's, he's amazing. He's a really kind of a spiritual grandfather in my life and uh, really had a, a big impact on me and Katie. He tells this story. I love it. I can't tell it as good as him. I'm going to try to. But he would say when he was a little boy in this, I guess it was the 60s or something, he, he lived down a dirt road from his grandmother. They, just, they were neighbors, but it was a good like mile distance or something. And on the weekends and growing up in the summers, he would go over to his grandma's house and he would stay up late and watch scary movies and eat ice cream, you know? And so he, oh, black and white scary movies, you know, Dracula and those kinds of things on, on their Frankenstein, the wolf man. He'd watch these movies, right? Well, then it would be time to go home. And he'd have to walk down that dark dirt road through the woods at night. And the way he tells it, he says, he says, I would walk down that road and out in those woods, I would see Dracula and Frankenstein and the wolf man. He said, no, what you, I don't mean that I thought they were there. They were there. That's how he would say it. He said, those guys, those monsters were there waiting to get me. And he tells the story, he says he would get home so scared and he'd tell his dad about everything he had seen out in the woods. And he'd say, my dad would take me back outside. And it's the craziest thing. When my dad was with me, the monsters weren't there. Come on. The cure for fear is the presence of a father. In the presence of my father, the things I was afraid of don't exist anymore. See, when we read in John, 1 John 4, 8 that God is love, a few verses down from where it says God is love, it says there is no fear in love because perfect love casts out fear. See, in the presence of the Father's perfect love, fear ceases to exist. If there has ever been a time in your life where you genuinely did not feel fear, God was closer than you thought. Abraham's riding into Egypt and fear starts to take over. And at any moment, he could have pulled over on the side of the road and said, I got to talk to God before we go any further. I'm feeling a little nervous. I'm afraid I need to talk to my heavenly father. Abraham is the man the Bible says was a friend of God who sat down at a table and ate a meal with God, who spent time with God on a regular basis. At any moment, he could have talked to his father. How would the story have changed if Abraham had stopped on the side of the road when he sensed that fear start to build up in his life and he talked to his father and he said, okay, God, how do we play this? How do we deal with this? I'm a little nervous. What do we do? What do you want me to do? How would things have been different for his family, for his wife, had he dealt with the fear before he walked into the city? If he had stopped and said, okay, God, I'm afraid. What do I do next? Now turn it inward. How would things look different for you? And your family, if instead of throwing up walls around your heart and your fears, you said, okay, God, I'm inviting my father into my fears. For the men in the room, we can stop this 
generational thing where young men are growing up angry and violent. How? By being fathers. And not just to our biological children, but the children in the room and the children in the community that don't have a father to model this for them. We can stop a generation of men growing up angry and addicted to violence if we would be fathers to this generation of young boys. And God, if you would invite him into your fears, he could stop fear in its tracks in your life. Katie, would you come on? I want you to stand with me this morning.